Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Yeah, for sure. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's, it's nice to follow up and change directions a little bit. Dr. Cooper gave an awesome talk. Uh, I definitely learned a lot. And uh, we'll talk a little bit today about bladder preservation strategies, which um, hopefully this is not the first time we're, we're hearing a lot of this, but I think it's incredibly important for urologists to understand that uh, radical cystectomy is not the only option for managing muscle invasive bladder cancer. And though I am a urologist, I do think it's important to have a good grasp on the data outside of our own field um, so we can make sure we give a balanced perspective to our patients. So uh, I have no financial disclosures or any other conflicts of interest, but I'm most certainly not a radiation oncologist, but I think I do a very fair job of, uh, of uh, going through the data that they've generated. And I do want to uh, make one disclosure that I'm jealous of some of their randomized uh, trials that they're able to accomplish. So the traditional bladder preservation paradigms are, are, have classically been only offering bladder sparing therapies when you have to, only offering them when patients want to. But really what I hope to uh, develop today is uh, a better understanding for everyone about what data is available to offer a patient-centered informed decision-making uh, for all patients that you see with muscle invasive bladder cancer. So to get started on this, I think it's important to have a bit of a conceptual framework and understanding of what goes into uh, the considerations for bladder preservation, and, and that's uh, several fold. And a lot of times it will be driven by patient treatment goals, their comorbidities, and what they're able to tolerate as far as treatment goes, uh, what treatments are available and efficacious to fit their comorbidity profile. And also it's very important to consider what the functionality of the bladder is at baseline. Um, to get started with this, we'll talk a little bit about patient preferences. And, and as you may imagine, uh, patients do prefer keeping their native bladders. And this was demonstrated in a two-to-one fashion in a uh, attempt at a randomized trial in the UK uh, where patients were either uh, randomized to radical cystectomy or bladder preservation strategies. Um, and this is supported by the fact that long-term, uh, most of the quality of life, especially sexual dysfunction, does favor uh, with the bladder remaining in situ and, and with trimodal therapies over radical cystectomy. Uh, and as I said, this is uh, largely driven by sexual dysfunction as well as some body uh, image issues. And there are some potential long-term uh, quality-adjusted life here improvements in, in patients who uh, keep their native bladder. Um, and this is a developing area within comparative effectiveness analysis that people are looking at. But I think it's extremely important when you're counseling patients, although keeping their bladder is certainly preferable in, in many ways, that there is a risk of preventable, preventable death that comes along with bladder sparing. And we'll go through the data for all of that. Um, so I'm going to harp on this a little bit. And I know past speakers certainly have as well and, and the folks that have talked about bladder cancer in the Empire Lectures. And all treatment really does start with TURBT. All roads start with TURBT. And, and this is uh, indicated here by some of the uh, uh, treatment schematics that, that follow after that, but I think it's important that a good TURBT and sometimes a repeat TURBT is really where you start the treatment uh, for patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer even. Um, staging is an absolutely critical aspect of, of, of managing bladder cancer, uh, and it's even more critical when you don't ultimately remove the bladder. So for patients who are uh, going to be considered for uh, organ preservation therapy, I think it's under, uh, important to understand 
just how good or bad we are at, at staging. So some of the historical series by some giants in the field like Whitmore, Ritchie, and Skinner have really showed that the clinical stage and the pathologic stage is really only concordant in about 50% of patients. And this both uh, from an understaging and an overstaging perspective, some more contemporary uh, studies do show that only about 40% of patients that we think are actually clinical T2 end up being pathological T2 on radical cystectomy, and about 60% are, and, are ultimately upstaged to PT3B or have no positive disease. So I think it's really important to get a good grasp on the uh, actual stage of the patient for making any management decisions. And I, I would be remiss not to mention that RETU-RBT is a standard of care in most situations, especially those uh, patients with high-grade uh, bladder cancer, any high-grade bladder cancer, and this was demonstrated time and time again, but uh, most prominently initially by Dr. Herr at Memorial, uh, where he demonstrated that about out of 150 patients, about three quarters had residual cancer at their second TURBT, and uh, a, a large portion of these patients were upstaged to muscle invasive bladder cancer, almost 50% of which, if there was no muscularis propria, uh, present on the initial specimen. So I think it's very, very important to understand that TURBT can change your treatment decisions and that it also actually improves outcomes for both muscle invasive bladder cancer and non-muscle invasive bladder cancer if you're able to do a complete. Um, and it also, and, and some of the residents I've started to work with this year will, will probably giggle at this, but uh, I kind of harp on the exam under anesthesia for completeness of staging uh, because you can get caught off guard by some variant histologies like plasmacytoid tumors that may not show as advanced uh, on imaging, but you can certainly feel um, uh, when you're doing a good exam and a patient's sleep. Uh, in, in addition to staging with TURBT, obviously the goals uh, of, of completing staging with imaging uh, uh, kind of uh, fill in the rest of the pieces of the puzzle. It's essential to confirm your exam and your TURBT for local staging as well as nodal status. Uh, it's important to rule out upper tract urothelial carcinoma and also evaluate for hydronephrosis. Um, my approach is generally just using a CT urogram. These are usually adequate and ideal from, uh, from the time the patient uh, presents, but it's important also not to per, uh, forget the chest. Uh, and in smokers particularly, uh, I favor a chest CT over a chest X-ray. Uh, and although this does introduce um, some difficult decision-making at times with, with nodules, most of these patients are long-term smokers and are indicated to have CTs anyway uh, for their for uh, screening for lung cancer. So some additional factors to consider are the tumor size and location. Solitary tumor is a slightly different approach to it than a multifocal tumor. The completeness of your TURBT, and we'll talk about how this factors into outcomes uh, in a bit. Uh, the clinical staging based on imaging, and as I said, hydronephrosis, and then some other factors such as has the patient had prior pelvic radiation? Uh, you know, patients who have had uh, anal or rectal cancer, patients who have had prior prostate cancer, this trying to kind of changes the calculus a little bit when you're considering whether these patients are options uh, for, for bladder preservation strategies. Variant histology has not been well studied in certain areas, so it's important to understand that these are uh, usually more aggressive subtypes of urothelial carcinoma, uh, the associated CIS versus diffuse CIS, and then uh, whether the patient has a history of bladder cancer is also very important too. You, you, will, you will manage someone differently, whether this is a first tumor or a long recurrent or progressive tumor. So I want to frame the rest of the talk with uh, some data from uh, arguably our, our, our best uh, trial with uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy prior to radical cystectomy. And I, and I want to frame the outcomes that we're talking about and also frame the question about uh, whether or not the, pa the patient's bladder can remain in situ by understanding that after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, about 40% of patients in the study were PT0 at the time of radical cystectomy. And even without neoadjuvant chemotherapy, 15% of these patients had no evidence of, of cancer during their cystectomy. So really this begs the question about whether these bladders actually needed to come out. 
And although this is one point in time and it does not really take into consideration recurrence in the bladder, I, I think this is uh, important data that, that definitely uh, pushed the field of bladder preservation uh, forward a little bit. So going from uh, sort of uh, the, the most uh, simplistic to the, to the most complex, we're gonna start uh, with some bladder preservation strategies. And, and believe it or not, TURVT alone, it was an early bladder preservation strategy and, and uh, actually has some, some good data to support it. However, uh, it's very important to understand that uh, for this situation, the data that does support this is in highly selected patients. So this is another one of Dr. Herr's studies. Uh, these are patients that were largely from the 1980s at Memorial. Uh, these were patients that had muscle invasive bladder cancer on their initial TURBT and then underwent a re-TURBT and had either uh, no evidence of disease, T0 or T1 uh, cancer. Um, he was, uh, the patients were counseled given the fact that they had muscle invasive bladder cancer to undergo cystectomy and uh, about a third of them did, but only about two thirds elected to just pursue TUR and, and continued surveillance uh, as an alternative strategy. And you can see the outcomes in these patients, there was roughly 100 and their five and 10 year disease specific survivals were excellent. And their five and 10 uh, uh, year percentages uh, with bladder retained were also excellent. But it's important to really understand that uh, these are not the, the typical muscle invasive bladder cancer patients, but in highly select patients that may have other comorbidities or other restrictions that do not allow them to get uh, some of the other treatments that we typically offer, this is a, a reasonable option. Uh, and this has been well studied, although these are uh, essentially historical um, at, at this point. Um, but you do see about a 50% five-year overall survival in, in, these, in these cumulative series or these aggregate series um, from many years ago that, that do demonstrate that this is feasible in very highly select patients. Partial cystectomy is the next step along the line. Uh, this is a uh, not very often done procedure, mostly because the eligible candidates are, are fairly rare. And it's estimated that only about 6 to 20% of patients who present with muscle invasive bladder cancer are candidates for partial cystectomy. There are some relative criteria to consider. Usually these are performed uh, for patients that have a solitary tumor, no CIS, uh, in a favorable location that does portend uh, an ease to partial cystectomy. And also it's important to understand that uh, you, you would want to do this in patients who have a normal bladder capacity to begin with because you are uh, taking out a fair amount of their bladder when you're doing this. There are some considerable advantages, which include definitive surgical staging and removing the tumor and usually the fat around it. You get the benefits of uh, both from a diagnostic and a therapeutic perspective of doing a lymph node dissection, and you can also perform this after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And that's what this next uh, slide highlights here is an early uh, MSK experience in, in the 90s using uh, MVAC. And uh, essentially what they did here was they looked at patients uh, who had a TURBT, this was kind of standard, after they gave them MVAC and looked at patients who had muscle invasive bladder cancer initially. And about 50% of these patients had PT0 TURBT after neoadjuvant chemo. What you can see here is that in the patients that elected to not undergo radical cystectomy, uh, of, the, of this group, 75% uh, were alive at 10 years and 53% were alive with an intact bladder. Um, I think it's important to understand that superficial recurrences after, to, uh, after neoadjuvant chemo and, and with bladder preservation strategies can be managed successfully with RE-TUR and BCG. Um, but the thing I really wanted to highlight from this study was that among the patients who uh, did elect to not have their bladders out, about four out of the nearly 50 or about 10% uh, ended up succumbing to disease. And this was uh, related every single time to a new recurrence of muscle invasive bladder cancer in the bladder. So this kind of demonstrates that uh, a potential loss of salvage 
in patients who do end up uh, undergoing uh, uh, bladder sparing surgery or bladder sparing uh, um, uh, strategies. This sort of highlights some of these studies with neoadjuvant and partial cystectomy. You don't have to belabor that uh, to get really into the, the rest of the meat of the talk here, and, and that's chemo uh, radiation for muscle invasive bladder cancer. So there's really four pillars to the chemo radiation data, and I'm going to touch on uh, all of them, but, but predominantly the RTOG studies and, and the large British randomized trial run by uh, Dr. James. Uh, which looked at uh, chemoradiation versus radiation therapy alone. Um, there are two very long-standing uh, single institution series, one out of MGH and another out of a, a large institute, uh, institution in Germany that uh, kind of show some of the longitudinal improvements over time, and we'll talk about those as well. So the RTOG trials, and this is kind of where I uh, mentioned earlier that I was a bit jealous of how the radiation oncologists are able to organize trials and are, are able to really generate uh, excellent data uh, for what they do and some of the variations in care. And I think we, we can learn a lot from not only their trials, but also their approaches to, to managing this disease process. So these RTOG studies, uh, there were six of them. Um, uh, uh, Mac and colleagues put together a uh, essentially a systematic review and aggregation of all six of these uh, studies uh, that was published in JCO a few years ago, and this totaled almost 500 patients. Uh, it's important to understand anytime you're looking at the bladder preservation literature, especially with, with radiation, though, uh, which patients are actually being selected for these trials. So I'll, I'll highlight that a little bit and talk about, um, you know, how that frames some of the outcomes here. But the inclusion criteria for these studies was essentially T2 to T4A disease that were all non-metastatic, so no evidence of nodal or, or distant disease. And later series after the first two, so any series that started in the 90s or the, or the 2000s, essentially excluded patients with hydronephrosis. So you'll see in these pooled data, there's only about 10% of patients have hydro. And I know that people who are familiar with managing bladder cancer, hydronephrosis is a fairly common uh, presenting symptoms, symptom, especially for patients with muscle invasive disease or, or more, more locally advanced disease. So the criteria they used here for the initial complete clinical, uh, uh, clinical uh, complete response was a negative exam under anesthesia, a cystoscopy with a tumor site biopsy and a cytology. And this is also important to understand um, you know, uh, what, the, what the metrics are for success in some of these studies. And in these studies, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer uh, failures were managed with intravesical therapy, and muscle invasive bladder cancer failures were managed with uh, salvage radical cystectomy, and I'll talk about that again in a little bit. So this is kind of a compilation of uh, what the protocols involved. As you can see, uh, all of them included a cisplatin-based chemotherapy regimen, some uh, included concurrent uh, radiation and chemotherapy. Others had a sandwich, others had neoadjuvant followed by radiation, and, and many included partial radiation to the nodes or in the pelvis. So looking at the data here uh, from these six studies, roughly 470 patients, as you can see, a lot of these patients were younger. The median age of, of bladder cancer in general was around 70, and about 60% of these patients were younger than 70. They were highly functional, all with a an ECOG status of uh, 90% with an ECOG status uh, of zero. Only 10% had hydro, which is based on those uh, exclusions from the later four studies. Uh, and few patients had various variant histology. The vast majority had true uh, urothelial carcinoma. Um, however, it is important to recognize, too, that although this was a predominantly younger population, those that were older also were able to uh, get similar rates of radiation therapy, uh, which will highlight a point I touch on later that uh, this is a solid option for patients who are not uh, necessarily eligible for radical cystectomy. 
But as I've said, this is a highly select population, so please keep that in mind when we are looking at the results. Um, so these are the overall survival results, Kaplan-Meier curve on the left. Um, according to their protocol criteria, patients, uh, about 70% of patients had initial complete response after their chemoradiation therapy. And again, that was a cystoscopy, an exam under anesthesia, a biopsy, and also a uh, cytology. So, uh, you know, this would demonstrate that there was good control initially for these patients. However, among the patients that did not have an initially uh, good complete response, and then patients who recurred later, 20% of patients in this entire study, so one in five patients in the study, uh, which amounted to about 100 uh, folks, um, ultimately underwent radical cystectomy. And the point that I, I want to uh, really highlight here is that radical cystectomy is still an essential component to disease control, even in radiation and, and bladder sparing um, uh, trials. And this will be shown again later in, in the British study, but about one in five patients in this entire study had to undergo radical cystectomy, and this absolutely contributes to some of the uh, good outcomes seen in these studies. Um, you do see a 57 and 36% five and 10 year overall survival in, in this pooled study. Um, and interestingly, bladder cancer was the cause of death in only one in four patients at five years. So although these, this was a healthy population, 75% uh, of these patients succumbed to something other than bladder cancer within five years, which is, which is an interesting uh, concept when you're considering who to operate on as well. Um, however, uh, the benefit is that those who were alive at five years, 80% had intact bladders, although there was, there was no um, uh, metric of, of bladder functionality in these studies. Uh, the disease-specific survival, as you can see on the left here, uh, as you may imagine, um, more locally advanced disease failed worse um, and, and failed more often. Uh, and as you can see on the right here, the differences in the disease-specific survival and the bladder intact survival uh, essentially do really drive that point home that radical cystectomy is making a difference in, in the survival of these patients. Um, about at 10 years, roughly one-third of these patients had a non-muscle invasive bladder cancer recurrence, which really highlights the need uh, for multidisciplinary care and the fact that the urologist is not uh, left out in, in uh, patients who do under, undergo bladder preservation strategies with, with trimodal therapy. Uh, it's essential for us to remain involved in their care because these patients are at high risk for non-muscle invasive recurrences and do require surveillance cystoscopies for their uh, bladder that remains in situ. Um, so this is truly a, a multidisciplinary approach for patients with bladder cancer. Um, again, I'm harping on this here, but the, the role of TURBT has been demonstrated in these trials as well as in the institutional series that a complete TURBT does uh, portend a, a higher uh, percentage of patients who uh, have a complete response from their um, chemoradiation therapy, and this may be from either a debulking or uh, from somewhat of a reverse causality uh, uh, paradox here, but overall survival is improved and the need for radical cystectomy is improved. And, and what may be happening here is that you are able to debulk less advanced and, and less uh, large tumors. Um, so that may be why the complete TUR status uh, does show this benefit, but it does also uh, potentially uh, introduce the concept that a, a good reduction in the tumor volume does lead to better outcomes, as you can see in both the disease-specific survival and the overall survival curves from the MGH series. 
So as I touched upon, uh, most of the uh, chemo radiation protocols have heavily favor uh, platinum as a uh, chemotherapy agent. And as we know, many patients are not platinum eligible because of either age, renal function, or other contraindications that do not allow them to get uh, platinum. So enter uh, the BC2001 trial, which uh, introduced 5-fluorouracil and mitomycin as a systemic uh, radiosensitizing chemotherapy agent to be used. Uh, in, in uh, studying it with, uh, with or without radiation therapy. So this study was a British study um, published in New England Journal, about 360 patients, and this was a partial two-by-two two factorial design. And what that means essentially is that patients were randomized to an arm of either radiation or radiation with chemotherapy, and then additionally randomized after that to either whole bladder radiotherapy or modified volume radiotherapy, which was uh, eventually changed to just whole bladder radiation therapy after uh, a planned midterm analysis, but that's slightly less important. And, and really what, the, what to take home from this trial is that this really established the uh, combined chemo radiation as, as a, a standard over radiotherapy alone. And in, the, in this study, the median age of these patients was 72, so a slightly older cohort with uh, only 50% that had complete TRBT, but most of these patients were uh, clinical T2, so bladder confined. What they saw here was that chemoradiotherapy uh, did portend a be benefit or did uh, have a benefit in uh, both local regional disease-free survival, so this was recurrence, local recurrence, and including uh, invasive local recurrence. Um, and what you can see here on the bottom, that although uh, the overall survival difference was not met uh, by a standard, um, standard uh, statistical significance here, what, what's important to recognize is that the radiotherapy arm only had about two times the amount of radical cystectomies performed compared to the chemoradiotherapy chemo arm. So what ended up happening is that because people failed more often from the radiotherapy arm, they ended up undergoing radical cystectomy, and that contaminated some of the benefit of the chemoradiotherapy over radiotherapy uh, by virtue of, of curing a fair amount of those patients with the salvage cystectomy. So that's important to remember as well. Um, when looking at the toxicities, this was a, a nicely done study because it included not only very rigorous um, uh, surveying of, of patient toxicities according to uh, accepted uh, standards. It also included a quality of life survey for the patients that were they were able to opt into. Um, and what you can see here is that during um, during treatment, there was about a one in three chance, especially in the chemoradiotherapy arm, that patients did develop a a, a pretty significant side effect. Uh, from treatment, and usually a grade three to four side effect is something that will land the patient in the hospital or, or at least in front of their physician for treatment, uh, although there were no deaths in the, uh, during treatment in this, uh, in, in this study. And really what uh, to focus on here are some of the late toxicities, and you can see here that these are fairly well tolerated from uh, the late toxicity perspective, although there are changes, as you can see in the, in the Lent SOM um, toxicity profile that, that do um, last long-term. And some of these grade three or four, um, uh, especially their bladder grade three or four uh, side effects are, are essentially what we see as urologists where people are coming in with significant uh, and very debilitating bladder, uh, bladder symptoms, uh, hematuria, and also having a functional loss uh, of volume. So 
these these uh, trimodal therapy protocols are are certainly less uh, toxic in the in the short term compared to radical cystectomy, but there are long-lasting uh, issues to to consider and counsel patients for. Um, from a quality of life perspective, this was a companion study that was recently published. Um, it essentially demonstrated that there were, uh, although there were some disruptions to quality of life in the short term associated with treatment and then recovery, most of these patients ended up actually uh, returning to baseline or having improved uh, scores because of control of their symptoms. I think it's important to recognize also that as our surgical techniques improve, uh, radiation techniques improve as well. This is data that supports that from the MGH experience. You can see that the red Kaplan-Meier lines uh, are the more recent, whether, whereas the blue and the green are older. Uh, you can see that uh, it is likely an improvement in both technique and also in patient selection. But as, as we've moved into the more modern uh, era with radiation, certainly with some of the more advanced radiation techniques that some of the prior Empire speakers have discussed, like SBRT, IMRT, you're seeing actually improved overall survival. Improved, improved disease-specific survival, which is probably related to uh, better nodal control, uh, and also improved bladder and tax survival. And you can see the radical cystectomy rate in the MGH series ha has decreased considerably from historical to the more recent cohort. So in, in summary here, uh, from, from these studies at least, uh, I think it's important to understand what radiation does and doesn't. And radiation does treat the whole bladder and pelvis, it does do a good job of controlling perivescal uh, microscopic disease. It can stabilize lymph node mats, including some of the uh, uh, micrometastatic disease, especially when cisplatin is given as the chemotherapy agent. And generally speaking, it does preserve bladder function in most patients, although there are certain uh, percentages of patients that will develop into what, you know, bladder cripples, for lack of a better term, uh, that have very difficult avoiding symptoms or, or end themselves up in the hospital frequently. Uh, it improves local control for certain over no treatment alone, especially, but it does potentially cause secondary tumors, and that's seen in about 3% of patients. What it doesn't do a good job of is preventing new tumors. Uh, it it uh, does not effectively treat mucosal disease or CIS, and uh, the treatment uh, effectiveness decreases as the bulkiness of disease increases. So larger tumors, multifocal tumors, tumors that are not able to be debulked, uh, endoscopically uh, have worse outcomes, uh, as they do in, in uh, patients who undergo radical cystectomy, but you will get worse um, uh, disease control as well here. Uh, T4 patients and, and those with hydronephrosis uh, have been largely excluded uh, from some of these trials, so the data for, for effectiveness in those patients is lacking a little bit. So I think it's important to uh, you know understand at the very, very uh, onset that there's no direct comparative evidence for radical cystectomy and, and trimodal therapy. And I'm going to highlight some of the studies that attempt to make these comparisons. Uh, and I will walk up the evidence ladder here from start to finish in evaluating these studies. But it, truly, uh, th there's very true apples to apples comparisons. So th this is kind of a, a table I put together just compare, comparing some of the important outcomes between the larger uh, TMT studies and radical cystectomy. And what I really want to highlight here, um, as, as I've gone over the RTOG studies and some of the, the, the British studies as well, um, is that, again, these patients were pretty highly selected and some were younger, a lot more functional, and based on uh, their disease characteristics, most were bladder confined. So Dr. Culp at uh, MD Anderson several years ago uh, and colleagues put together essentially a, a study that looked at uh, the radical cystectomy outcomes in the contemporary error that 
mirrored some of the characteristics of the, the patients undergoing radiotherapy. So these looked at patients who were more functional, patients who had fewer comorbidities, and patients who had uh, organ-confined T2 disease for the most part. And, and what they showed here was that their outcomes in that subset of patients were actually excellent. They had a 72% overall survival at five years and about an 83% uh, uh, cancer-specific survival at five years. And this is in contrast as you can see to some of the numbers in the 50s and 60s uh, for those in, in trimodal therapy. So th there may be some signal here then to uh, a radical cystectomy providing slightly improved disease control. Um, the next step up on the ladder here from these institutional studies are, are, are two studies that used uh, databases. One was a population level database, SEER. This was from uh, Dr. Williams and colleagues from uh, down in Texas. And essentially, they showed uh, that overall survival uh, in patients undergoing radical cystectomy was superior to those uh, undergoing uh, trimodal therapy. However, it's extremely important to understand that in SEER studies and National Cancer Database studies, like the one to the right here, that these patients, uh, you're, you're only able to do analyses with, with the variables that you have available. So these, these both of these studies used inverse probability weighting, which is a propensity score method to try to balance the characteristics between the two cohorts. But that does not take into account any of the residual confounding that's inherent to the, this selection of, of patients undergoing each therapy. So it's very important to understand that this is not necessarily a, a true causal relationship. This is um, definitely an association more than, than a causality. Um, the next step up the ladder here is a randomized study. However, the study was not randomized for patients to undergo either uh, radiation or radical cystectomy. The study here was a, a neoadjuvant chemotherapy study that was randomized for or against neoadjuvant chemo, and local treatment choice was determined uh, by the patient or the physician. So the, the randomization was most certainly not for, um, for local treatment. Uh, as you can see here, about 40% got uh, radiation, 50% got radical cystectomy, and a small percentage got a combination of both, um, which, which lended the, uh, the two arms to be unbalanced, but the radical cystectomy group was younger and healthier, uh, but they did have worse cancer by both uh, a T and nodal stage. Uh, what this did show, however, was that uh, the radiation uh, arm here in isolated and without any comparison did show slightly worse uh, overall and median survival compared to the cystectomy arm. And the overall survival and subgroup analyses, which was not uh, a randomized subgroup analysis, was higher in cystectomy arm than the radiation arm. Um, moving into an attempt at a randomized trial, uh, in the UK, uh, they attempted to um, perform a randomized trial that looked at uh, whether you could randomize someone to radical cystectomy versus bladder sparing alone. And this study, although, although it was a, a very a good attempt, uh, was somewhat doomed from the beginning because unfortunately to detect some of the differences based on their study design, the design was powered for over a thousand patients. And in the first three years the study was open, it only accrued 45 patients. And this was for a lot of reasons and, and most certainly not from any fault of the investigators because this was a, a, a very uh, ambitious study that, that they undertook. Uh, what I want to highlight here is some of the difficulties in, in studying something like this in a comparative fashion because nearly 500, nearly two-thirds of the patients 
or over two-thirds of the patients that were approached for this study were ineligible based on the criteria. And the most important criteria was that they had to be a uh, essentially a candidate for all three aspects of treatment. So they had to be a candidate for cystectomy, for radiation, and for chemotherapy. And as you can imagine, finding these patients in, in those with muscle invasive bladder cancer is sometimes difficult. Uh, they also excluded patients with CIS because of the radiation concerns, upper tract urothelial carcinoma, and any untreated hydro. So the, the actual calipers they were able to use to find some of these patients were, were, were quite small. The other issue that was highlighted in a companion study that accompanied this was that there were some concerns that there was not true equipoise uh, among clinicians, which prevented enrollment in certain patients. Uh, and just the way the clinical pathway in the UK exists, it was difficult to get urologists to buy into this because I think at this time, at least, uh, urologists were not as uh, comfortable and certainly may not have believed in trimodal therapy as an effective option. Um, the other thing that's important to understand here as well uh, is that when they were looking at response to chemotherapy in their randomized arms, this was only based on cystoscopy and uh, physical exam, and, and that uh, will be highlighted in a sec. So there were about 50 patients who, who did undergo uh, randomization and contributed data to the study, and there's really not enough power um, in this study to detect any uh, reasonable difference here. Uh, but there was a, a significant uh, higher risk of uh, local regional recurrence in the patients who underwent bladder-sparing therapies, and this was largely related to uh, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer recurrences rather than actual treatment failure. Um, the other thing that's important to understand is that the patient, patients who had a poor response to neoadjuvant chemo up front, as you may expect, uh, uh, had a much worse prognosis. Uh, and overall survival than those who didn't, and that will be discussed again in a little bit when it comes to uh, some of the uh, more modern studies that are, are being undertaken. Um, however, in this group, overall survival was uh, superior in radical cystectomy, although this was, again, not powered uh, for this comparison. Um, however, what this study did also demonstrate was that bladder sparing protocols were possible, um, uh, but one of the concerning things that was uh, seen here was that the overall uh, complete response rate was much higher in this study than in prior neoadjuvant studies, and that indicates that when doing cystoscopy alone to uh, determine uh, response, this may actually understage patients considerably, and a, and a more um, comprehensive approach may more appropriately or more accurately stage patients, including uh, imaging, potentially MRI, or, or other modalities that help uh, look also outside the bladder, including the lymph nodes and submucosal disease. So some other considerations for using radiation uh, that I think that are very important for urologists to consider is, is that patients frequently do not get treatment for their muscle invasive bladder cancer. And this is important because muscle invasive bladder cancer, if left untreated, is universally fatal. So these are two SEER studies uh, and, and uh, other database studies uh, from Dr. Gore and also from a European group that essentially show that only about 50% of patients actually receive definitive local therapy in those who are, uh, have muscle invasive bladder cancer. And obviously as patients get older and have more comorbidities, this is more related to uh, not receiving treatment. And those over 80 years old had about a 90% lower odds of having a radical cystectomy, which is understandable because of the hesitation that most folks have and their comorbidities. However, uh, leaving these patients untreated is, is associated with a very, very high rate of, of, of uh, death 
and a lot of times a prompt and somewhat painful death. So it's important to understand that uh, muscle invasive bladder cancer when untreated is not going to do well for the patient. So it's important to consider uh, and offer non-radical cystectomy local treatments for uh, either palliative purposes or also for treatment purposes. And in this study uh, out of Europe, about 40% uh, had metastases six months after diagnosis. And this kind of gives you a very good idea of what the natural history of untreated muscle invasive bladder cancer is, and, and it is most certainly not pretty. So about 30% of patients, if you're considering um, those unfit for muscle invasive bladder cancer, about 30% of them are, are fall into this criteria. And this essentially highlights about five studies that look specifically at uh, radiation for those unfit for uh, radical cystectomy. And this does demonstrate uh, not as good of survival as what has been seen in some of the RTOG studies or the British study, but this does demonstrate that uh, by adding radiation therapy in a palliative fashion, it does improve local control and also survival. So what's happening in the future? What can we look forward to when it comes to uh, bladder preservation strategies? And I think that this is a really exciting aspect of what's going on in, in, the, in the bladder cancer world. Uh, and it's largely driven by uh, our medical oncology colleagues and, and some of the folks that have been doing a lot of great work in, um, in genomic sequencing. So, so what's been determined in several different institutions, including Memorial, Fox Chase, uh, and at Dana-Farber, is that patients who have DNA damage repair gene mutations such as ATM, RB1, FANC, and ERCC2 have a uh, exquisite response to cisplatin-based chemotherapy. And what you can see here in all these curves is that patients with these mutations, these DNA damage mutations, uh, you can see that they have incredibly good uh, long-term survival, progression-free survival, uh, disease-specific survival. And, and this generated hypotheses that potentially patients with these mutations this is sort of another uh, demonstration of that. Uh, it, it, dem it led to these hypotheses that these patients with, with these DNA damage repair mutations may actually be able to keep their bladders. Um, so what has been developed are a few studies looking at the use of next-generation sequencing to identify these mutations in DNA damage repair uh, genes uh, and essentially stratifying these patients according to their risk based on those mutations and whether or not they including clinical factors such as residual disease and repeat TURBT. So the goal here is really to use the information gathered from the sequencing uh, to potentially spare these patients' bladders. Uh, and this is one example of that study. This is Dr. Plonak's study from uh, Fox Chase, the retained study. This is a alliance study that is uh, uh, happening at several centers, including Memorial, that's using the MSK impact sequencing. Uh, as well as circulating free DNA to uh, understand patients' uh, response after dose-dense gemcitabine cisplatin, and then stratifying these patients to potentially either radical cystectomy or a, a bladder-sparing protocol. Um, and I think that's really exciting and, and some of the very interesting uh, stuff that's happening in the future. And as we get a better understanding also of some of the uh, functional mutations uh, uh, in, in bladder cancer, not only non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, but also muscle invasive bladder cancer, we can certainly try to target some of these with some of the uh, new agents that are coming out, such as the FGFR uh, agents as well. So in summary, and I think I'll, I'll leave a fair amount of time for any questions or anything else, um, there are some limitations of trimodal therapy, and these are important to understand. The, 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 the populations that this has been studied in have been heavily uh, and highly selected and this limit, limits some of the translatability of these findings. A lot of these protocols do include cisplatin, although there was a landmark study that I discussed that included 5-fluorouracil, 
and uh, mitomycin as radiosensitizing agents. Uh, and this is important because many of our patients have chronic kidney disease. Um, when choosing the, uh, the chemotherapy agent, cisplatin is much more effective than uh, the radiosensitizing agents for treatment of systemic disease. So you will not see as much of a, uh, a benefit to the micrometastatic disease in patients that get 5-FU and mitomycin compared to those who get cisplatin. So that's important to consider. Um, there are some concerns about clinically understaging. Um, so it's very important when you're offering someone a treatment option to have a good idea of what stage their disease is in order to appropriately counsel them. Um, there's no staging uh, or therapeutic benefit to lymph node dissection in these patients, which I do think is an important uh, aspect uh, for, for local disease uh, staging and control. And uh, there are some limitations in giving patients radiation therapy to those who uh, have already had radiation to the pelvis. However, there are, are considerable benefits to trimodal therapy, and these are important to understand as urologists. And this is that TMT is likely to be very well tolerated by those who are not radical cystectomy candidates and by also those who are radical cystectomy candidates. Uh, in the limited amount of uh, study that has been done in patients who have gotten radiation therapy, there have been minimal long-term bladder uh, changes in most patients, although it does seem that those who are hurt are hurt pretty badly. Uh, some patients do require radical cystectomy for intractable bladder pain or, or local symptoms. Uh, with that said, the long-term GU and GI toxicities are generally acceptable. Um, some patients' quality of life actually improves because of local control. And for patients where sexual function is a, a, a considerable uh, priority, uh, their sexual function is largely maintained um, in these patients, although a, a nerve-sparing uh, radical cystectomy is possible to perform. Um, there are generally no peritreatment deaths uh, associated with trimodal therapy, whereas uh, you know anywhere from one to three percent of bladder cancer patients treated with radical cystectomy will will die within 90 days. Uh, it's also effective in palliation, as I hope I've uh, stressed, uh, especially for patients who are not radical cystectomy candidates. And that cystectomy is still an option after these patients are treated, although. Uh, there are some surgical concerns and concerns about uh, diversion options available to patients who have had uh, pelvic radiation. Uh, radical cystectomy is not only an option after this, but it is also a, a very necessary uh, component uh, of salvage therapy in these patients. So the real take-home messages here are that bladder sparing is certainly feasible and appropriate in selected patients. Uh, staging definitely does remain a challenge uh, and, and does uh, prevent really meaningful comparison between the series and studies. Uh, a patient-centered discussion is essential with the understanding that uh, although the patient may retain their natural bladder, there is some risk, and it's about 10% uh, of not being able to salvage, uh, treat these patients leading to death. Um, and it's also important to understand the difference between cisplatin-based chemotherapies, uh, which really effectively treat systemic disease versus radiosensitizing. Uh, a good TURBT is essential and important. This is uh, very important for urologists to con continue to be um, uh, instrumental in the care of these patients and that uh, surgically unfit patients can benefit from radiation. Uh, as I mentioned, the effectiveness is contingent on prompt salvage um, and that in the future, uh, risk-adapted strategies based on next-generation sequencing, clinical factors, as well as other biomarkers are, are probably going to be driving our, our treatment algorithms uh, and that urologists will most certainly remain essential in both diagnosing and managing muscle-invasive bladder cancer uh, including those who do not undergo radical cystectomy because of the continued need for surveillance and uh, treatment by urologists for symptoms, potentially. Uh, and I'll just end this with a quote from one of the uh, legends in the field and former chair of uh, urology at Memorial that cystectomy 
is still the gold standard for treatment of uh, muscle invasive disease and it's still the standard to which all treatments must be compared. Uh, so do not cast it in bronze just yet, despite all of the benefits uh, that I have uh, mentioned about uh, trimodal therapy. So thank you very much. Uh, Rich, that was a really great talk. Thanks so much. That actually fits in perfectly and uh, coincidentally between uh, two of your current and former colleagues. Dr. Steinberg gave us an amazing lecture on high-grade T1 and BCG failure. And then Dr. Bachner gave us a lecture on um, radical cystectomy and reconstruction for muscle invasive disease. So your bladder sparing protocols um, and you know, current research and bladder sparing procedures uh, fits perfectly into that sequence. So when people go back and watch these videos, we'll have to have them uh, watch those three in a row. Uh, we do have one. Well, I'm, I'm certainly not sure I can. Uh, <laughs> uh, my name deserves deserves to be mentioned among those two names, but um, may, maybe someday. But but thank you're, you. You're getting there. You're getting there, man. This is great. So one question here, um, Dr. Patel asked: After each TURB uh, operation, pathological analysis. Uh, hold on. Plus, pathological analysis needs to think about what else except the next TURB unless it is shortly necessary to be repeated. Uh, I am not really sure. Maybe Dr. Patel, can you clarify that question? I'm not really sure what you mean by that. Um, in the meantime, I was, you know, um, as you were going through and then especially in your conclusions, I think patient selection is really the, the key here when you're talking about bladder sparing. Um, especially in the, the settings of those lectures I just mentioned, you know, proper patient staging seems to still be a challenge as we understand more and more about the genomic characteristics of individuals' bladder tumors themselves. I think patient selection is going to get better. Fast forward 10 years, what do you think this space is going to look like from when a patient walks into your office with hematuria, they get their TURBT, and it shows bladder cancer what do you what do you think it's going to look like for them yeah i mean i think that's a great question and certainly i think where where the field is headed is probably uh greater use of sequencing in the uh, earlier in the, in the treatment algorithm you know what, what we've seen is really just remarkable progress in in understanding a lot of the mutations that lead to both the development and, and the progression of bladder cancer um, and as you can see with the torrential uh, volume of new agents that are coming out in, in the metastatic setting, that a lot of these new treatment options actually, uh, you know, exploit some of, of the biology of these tumors. So I think having a good understanding upfront of what you're working with uh, will really change the, the way we approach these things because you know, we know that some patients do very poorly with non-muscle invasive disease. We know that some patients do very poorly with uh, muscle invasive disease and, and, you know, the phenotypes kind of separate at some point, but up until the last few years, it wasn't really clear why, you know, we had clinical factors, we had staging, but we didn't really understand the biology behind all of this. And I think that's becoming a lot more clear now. So I think that there will be greater use of uh, upfront systemic agents, more targeted agents. And I think that as these targeted agents become uh, more well tolerated, uh, I, I think that they will be more acceptable and more widely used in the upfront setting. So in patients with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, because really the goals here are, are several fold and, and 
primarily it's it's to to help the patient um, and the patient generally wants both improved survival and improved quality of life and that's kind of the 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 the, the dual goal here so I think keeping patients' bladders in situ and, and certainly functional at that same time while also providing good cancer control is really, you know, what we're all striving for. And I, and I think by, you know, really truly multidisciplinary care, um, working with the radiation oncology colleagues and uh, our medical oncology colleagues will, will be absolutely critical to, to working towards that, uh, that goal. Absolutely. That team approach is, is what it's all about when you're moving into these, um, you know, advanced trials and everything. I think your jealousy of the um, radiation oncologist trials is, is good and gives us something to strive for when we think about our own, uh, you know, next, next generation trials. Absolutely. Difficult, but not, not impossible. So it requires collaboration and, uh, you know, a, a lot of effort, but it's, it's certainly worth it. Yeah. Um, uh, Dr. Kreiderman asked, uh, how do you follow up on your TMT patients uh, with regard to cystoscopy, cytology, imaging, scheduling? So this is also a, a, collaborative, a collaborative effort usually because these patients are, are seen by all three of us. So uh, medical oncology, radiation oncology. Uh, we're largely responsible for cystoscopy, obviously. The imaging is usually ordered by one one member of the team, but it, it's not uh, too dissimilar from someone who has high-grade uh, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. So after the initial treatment, uh, it's essential to really do a good cystoscopy, biopsy, anything that looks suspicious, and maybe even some of the um, scars, uh, even you know before putting the patient on a surveillance schedule, because I think the data really does show that a prompt salvage cystectomy is essential to to identify patients who have failed, um, or rather the treatment has failed the patient. Um, and, and identifying that early on is essential for, for disease control. So I would say that a cystoscopy with cytology, um, although cytologies are sometimes difficult to interpret after uh, radiation, but a, a good cysto and imaging after treatment, uh, probably a month after treatment is finished, and then putting the patient on a, on a Q3 month schedule after that uh, with, with imaging every three to six months uh, and then sort of spacing that out uh, afterwards. You know, I think that we, we do a lot of surveillance and a lot of uh, imaging uh, for patients and not a lot of it is data driven. So I think doing a, a risk adapted approach to that is reasonable too, but keeping a very close eye on these patients in the first couple of years after treatment is very important. Um, and as you can see from the data, about a third of the patients have a non-muscle invasive recurrence uh, within five to 10 years. So. Um, you know, identifying these and also treating them with BCG, mitomycin, uh, TRBT is, is important as well. Along those same lines, uh, Dr. Cohen here asked, uh, Dr. Cohen asked, uh, how often do you think random rebiopsy is necessary after TMT, um, or is it only necessary for visible tumor? Uh, so I, I have no data to uh, answer that question with, but I, I will tell you that uh, at NYU, we use a lot of um, CISVIEW and other more advanced cystoscopy techniques that really do help us uh, see what's going on. You know, the, the radiated bladder is uh, it's different than the normal bladder. So I think being uh, aggressive about biopsy, especially uh, early on, I, I don't think is unreasonable. But there are some treatment effects that need to be considered in the bladder after getting radiation that 
a good relationship with your pathologist is important too because uh, you know these, these are not normal tissue that you're sending to, uh, the pathologists but uh, I think you know what I've done in these patients is really direct uh, the biopsy towards anything that looks suspicious but I, I've not generally done uh, random biopsies gotcha thanks so much um, all right I think that is all the 